Trevor and we are the Boo Crew. Welcome to episode 183. Here's a Boo Crew fright pack. In 1980s alligator Ramon, the often malfunctioning animatronic alligator used in the film, was later donated to the Florida Gators as a team mascot. Ramon made many appearances before games and during halftime. Something that helps the show so much is by going to Apple Podcasts and not only rating the show, but writing us a quick review as well. We love connecting with you in that way and hearing from you. We will also read your review and say hey at the top of the show, like Leo is going to do right now. Hey, we got one from Peter Tansky. He writes, the lighter side of horror, nerddom. I stumble into the Boo Crew via the bloody disgusting cosine, and to my morbid delectation, this chummy power trio delivers so much appreciated levity during this era of perpetual doldrums. The real-life interpersonal relationships between the three is incredibly palpable and lends to the jovial nature of the podcast. The interviews are well thought out and flow beautifully. Although the more extreme corners of horror cinema aren't explored too deeply, the variety of films, makers, actors is broad and informative. Well done, folks. And he rates us five stars. Nice! Thank you very much. From this chummy power trio to you, we say thank you. And wow, well written as well. Yes. Yes. There's a lot of big words in there. SAT words. Peter, can you help tutor my kid? Just saying. She's engaged, but she needs help. The more extreme corners of horror cinema. Would that be, Leo, like, what's that movie you're always talking about? Oh, maybe perhaps uh, Serbian film? Serbian film. Or the guinea pig movies, or what, the Poughkeepsie tapes I've been reading about? I haven't seen that yet. Yeah. We'll have to do a whole show on just the most insane shit we can dig up. Yeah, that sounds yeah. like fun. <laughs> and then purge it by watching like a marathon of the Care Bears and then reviewing that. We had someone in here, their first horror movie experience, or horror experience, was was on an episode of the Care Bears. Kate Siegel. Kate, Kate Siegel. Siegel. Do you remember yeah. what it was? It was the Care Bears were in a haunted house, right? Yep. And yeah. we found the episode. <laughs> well, yes. we got another review. It says, wow, wow, wow. I've been listening since Josh Hasty was in representing his film Candy Corn. The Boo Crew has become a part of my daily routine. Every day when I drive to work and I see a new episode, I am instantly reminded my car ride is not long enough. Listening to fans of the genre that truly love it is a breath of fresh air. Keep up the amazing work and just know that you make so many of our days just a little bit better and a whole lot spookier. Oh, wow. And it and, it's and, from I am John Norton. Five stars. Yes, Thank yes. you so much. And I love Josh Hasty. And Candy Corn was so fun and amazing. Yes. And 
I'm yeah. glad that we can make your car ride seem fast. And spooky. <laughs> and spooky at the same time. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter and John, for those amazing reviews and for taking the time. We appreciate it so much. If you'd like to do the same, all you got to do is hit up the Boo Crew on Apple Podcasts and we will read your review at the top of the show. This time around, we are joined by award-winning special effects and makeup wizard Tony Gardner. With close to 200 credits to his name, he has a legacy and long-storied history of being a part of movie magic on so many of your favorite genre films. From The Return of the Living Dead, Aliens, The Lost Boys, Evil Dead 2, Darkman, Zombieland, The Child's Play franchise, and most recently, Happy Death Day, and brand new in theaters at time of release, the number one movie at the box office, Chris Landon's Freaky. Hear about the films that drove his past and inspired him and how he went from the bedroom to being mentored by Rick Baker on the set of Thriller, Stan Winston, and shortly after starting his very own company, Alterian Inc. Episode 183 starts now. Hail to the king, baby. The Boo Crew dusts a fright flick off the shelf for Ah! Horror Homework. We're going to go around the room and around the world wide web all the way out to Leo in beautiful downtown To each highlight a horror flick to each other and possibly even to you that we consider a must-see or perhaps worth a revisit, starting with my man Leo. Hey, you freaks and ghouls. Have you guys uh, checked out this movie called Cadaver? No. Nope. Haven't even heard of it. This one came out like the week of Halloween, I think, on Netflix. It's huh. a 2020 movie. And um, Norwegian, too. It's uh, written and directed by Jaron Herdal. And uh, it's got a pretty... You know, large uh, cast there, but the main three players in this is basically a family: husband and wife. Wife played by Gitty Witt, as she plays Leonora. The husband um, played by Thomas Gulstad. He plays Jacob, the, the husband, the father, and the daughter played by um, uh, the daughter Alice, played by Tuva Olivia Renman. This movie takes place in Norway in the starving aftermath of a nuclear disaster. A family of three attends a charitable event at a hotel, which takes a dark turn when people start to disappear. It's interesting how the premise plays out as there are first seen in the movie acting as scavengers looking for clothing and food during what appears to be like a nuclear winter. So everything looks dark and it just looks, you know, like bleak and hopeless. But as they starve at home, the mom, Lenora, hears a guy in a carriage outside making a commotion about about a show at a hotel and you know he's promoting the event as to having a free dinner and a show you know so she's like well you know free dinner free food well she gives them you know money for three tickets for the family so the attendee event and it's a fancy elaborate dinner which ends with the mc of the event describing the rules of the event it sort of plays out like a mystery murder dinner show except it's way more elaborate and takes place in the entirety of a rather large Victorian-esque hotel. Have you guys been to like those murder mystery shows? No, I've never no. been to one. They did. They used to do them at the old Spaghetti Factory out in oh, Duarte. Yeah. Remember? You always want to crash. I always want to crash. Oh, it. that's cool. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. if, if they ever do those, we got to go. Um, but man, I mean, this is how this one plays out, you know. But except it's on a much larger scale. So the, the rules are, you know, in this movie, that you must wear a mask. So after dinner, everybody's given a mask to wear. They sort of look like these medieval-looking masks, you know? And those who are not wearing a mask are a part of the show. So a quick scene plays out in the ballroom, dining room. The attendees can choose to follow one of the two character actors as the event plays out. So people get up, you know, the, the different people in attendance, and they go one way or another, right? And that's, you know, where they get their stories and stuff and, their, and you know, their interactions. 
So the family is hesitant as each room they pass, scenes are playing out which are adult themed. Like in one room, there's a couple arguing. And since the, the daughter is like 10 years old, they're like, uh, not sure about this one. Then, then of course, they pass another room and the couple is having sex. So they're like, oh, definitely not this one. Yeah. So they finally end up following a character down the hall. And this is where the story takes turn and starts to unfold. The movie gets much more darker and mysterious, so you'll just have to watch. The set pieces are, 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 are quite beautiful. I'm not sure if this is a real hotel or just set pieces, but it's pretty amazing what, what they constructed for this. Uh, the setup and the event reminds me quite a bit like a fancy next-level John Braver delusion event. Oh, cool. So if you can imagine that, I mean, I can imagine John pulling this off. Like if somebody gave him an abandoned hotel and says, hey, take this over. I mean, I can imagine this coming to life. It was it's pretty, pretty awesome. You know, I've never been to one of these uh, murder mystery dinner things, but if they resemble something like this on this scale, I totally want to go, man. <laughs> this movie is currently streaming on Netflix. It's a Netflix production. So I recommend it if you're into the horror mystery thriller. It's on the lighter side of horror, although it's got some stuff that kind of feels hostile-esque on the darker side of horror and, and gore. But yeah, definitely check it out. It's got some cool things. Cadaver on Netflix. So over the weekend, a certain film went viral on TikTok 10 years after its release with a bunch of people beginning to share their reactions to the movie. This isn't the first time it went viral. It seems to resurface every few years cyclically. Now, the last time appeared to be in 2018, but most recently, just over this weekend. So it's written and directed by a guy named Michael Goy about the days leading up to the disappearance of a 14-year-old named Megan Stewart here in North Hollywood, right by where we are actually, and her 13-year-old best friend, Amy, and her efforts to find her. It is called Megan is Missing. Have you seen this yet, Leo? No, but I think I recall hearing something about it a few years ago. Yeah, it makes the rounds. And it's back again. And we decided to take one for the team and check it out. So it's marketed (laughs) as an educational film to warn about the dangers of online predators. It was shot in 2006 with mostly unknown first-time actors, wrote in 10 days, shot over the course of a week. It was banned in New Zealand for objectionable content when it came out. It's a found footage film compiling handheld webcam and security cam footage. It's intense, man. Yeah. I couldn't finish it because it's just like disturbing. Yeah. I don't know what kind of horror it is. It's just horror I don't want to see. And just it sticks with you. And even like reality based horror, maybe this is like the true evils of the world. Yeah. If you're a parent and you have a, a daughter. It's, I feel like, extra creepy because you put yourself, you just, it made me ask myself a million questions over and over again about my life and my kids' life and their life on the internet and what it all means and could this happen to them and... That sure can. It's one of those things where it makes you question, certainly as a parent, am I policing our kids use of the internet as much as we should. Yeah. You know, because this stuff does happen. Obviously this is an extreme version, but this extreme version does happen. This film was based on a number of cases that he had researched. It's those questions that literally kept me up all last night. 
I mean, we saw it last night. I slept for maybe an hour. And all this stuff, including haunting. I mean, I was haunted by the movie, the images that you see. And this is what people on TikTok are talking about as well. These images that you'll see in this film stick with you. And also those questions that you answer yourself as a parent or just as a human being stick with you as well. So I kept you know, asking myself these questions all night. I just couldn't turn it off. And then our dog who <laughs> sleeps near the tail end of the bed. She's got this howl that she does. It's this crazy howl. It only has happened a few times. But when she's sleeping and she, I guess it's a dream. I don't know if it's nightmares or whatever when she has them. But she'll do this howl and she'll sound like a human being. The, yeah. It does not sound like a dog, right? It sounds like La Llorona moaning. Right? Yes, like how you'd oh, imagine no. La Llorona would sound moaning oh, no. at the foot of your bed. So I finally end up falling asleep for maybe 10 minutes around 430 because I remember the times I woke up darting out of bed to this howling. And this is what it sounded like. Like that. But and like worse. Like worse. Because that's a little owl, owly. Okay, yeah, maybe. But it's, yeah, it's... it's like it's, more guttural, like a little yeah. deeper. Ooh, like it's a moaning. Yeah. And it goes on for a while. And I shot out of bed like a rocket. <laughs> and I was screaming, so I was so scared. I was doing that scream where there's so little air that it just... <gasps> Silence. scream. <gasps> <gasps> I was terrified. And Lauren woke up like, what the fuck? What? It's okay. Oh my God. I was so scared. And I, oh, when shit. I went to the bathroom, I had to turn the oh, light on, Leo. And even this is another one. I remember I watched Hell House LLC 2, I guess, last <laughs> yes, week. Yes, this week, and I had to do the same thing. Lauren had gone up because she couldn't handle the rest of the movie, and I stayed down there. And on the way up, you know, he turned off the light. He fucking just run up the stairs. That's what I did. It was so scared. <laughs> this film's use of silence and no score casts an incredibly creepy tone over the whole thing. And even the fact that it gets inexplicably campy in some places makes it so unsettling in the way that it seems to kind of mock the exploitive and distant nature of true crime TV news shows versus the dangerous realities it portrays. And the film gets progressively nasty and dark about halfway through. And in conversations and situations, it becomes very difficult to watch, culminating in an insanely uncomfortable and descriptive talk. You will know when you see it between Megan and Amy. Now that's when this thing starts spinning off into one of the most intense and jarring things that I know I've ever put myself through watching. At this point, Lauren left the room. Yep. And he, here is director Michael Goy, who ended up addressing everybody on TikTok over the weekend, responding to the recent resurgence of the film with a very important message. Here's Michael. Hello, my friends on TikTok. This is Michael Goy, the writer-director of Megan is Missing. And I was uh, got a, I got a text from Amber Perkins, the lead actress in my movie, that it was exploding on, on TikTok at the moment. And I didn't get to give you the customary warnings that I used to give people before they watched Megan is Missing, which are do not watch the movie in the middle of the night. Do not watch the movie alone. And if you see the words photo number one pop up on your screen, you have about four seconds to shut off the movie if you're already kind of freaking out before you start seeing things that maybe you don't want to see. So apologies to those who are already posting about how the movie has freaked them out, but fair warning to those of you who are still contemplating watching the film. Thanks. 
There you go, Leo. Photo one wow. and photo two. I was Holy not shit. I was not ready for. They are literal gut punches. And those photos rung in my brain all night. Oh, and we'll probably do the same thing tonight. What oh, happens God. in the last part of the film honestly left me so deeply disturbed that yeah, I got maybe an hour of sleep last night. So this is real horror. If you go here, oh, tread cautiously. I will say that the decisions made in the way this thing are is filmed are some that I've never seen before and are incredibly bold and certainly makes the message of this film hit the likes of which you've never experienced. Again, tread cautiously. It is not for everybody. Now, director Michael Goy has since gone on to be a multiple Emmy Award nominated cinematographer for his work with Ryan Murphy. He's one of Ryan Murphy's main cinematographers on American Horror Story and Glee. He's also directed multiple episodes of Chilling Adventures of Sabrina, Riverdale, Pretty Little Liars, American Horror Story, and more. And the two lead actresses, Amber Perkins and Rachel Quinn, are very much alive and well. Good. I'm glad that you reported that. Because a lot of people are thinking... This is like a full-on documentary. Well, Chrissy thought it was a, a documentary, and then I was like, no, it's found footage. But and a lot of, I guess a lot of people on TikTok, especially younger people who have not grown up with found footage films, like the Blair Witch Project and things like that, who might not have been exposed to things like that, this is almost kind of becoming their Blair Witch Project this weekend. It's so it's crazy. definitely a fictional drama, right? I mean... Yeah, but yeah. depicting, you know, depicting things that do happen that, and have happened right like horrific right. things horrific that, things things that are just really sad yes. and scary but in a different way and not like a paranormal or like that's what i when i went into this you know you're like oh it's so scary here you know it's really scary i was like oh it's probably like ghosts or demons or that right. kind of scary but it's it's a different kind of scary and it kind of reminds me when, uh, remember I was telling you guys about uh, the documentary Beware the Slender Man? It kind of reminds me of that, except the difference is that the Slender Man documentary is real. Like yeah. the, the two girls are real, and, you know, and they really did stab their friend, you know, whatever, 19 times or whatever, you know. But yeah, that, it begs, you know, it makes you ask the question, like, are, you know, what are my kids doing, you know, online? You know, um, it's so easy to slip into their friend tells you, hey, check out this photo, check out this website. And it's like, mm-hmm. you can't always be there. So there's always that fear that they're, Seeing something that they're not supposed to, you know, or talking to people That's that they it. don't know who they really are. That's it. I'm building right. a bubble right. for our kids. I'm building a bubble. <laughs> they're going in there right now. Project Bubble starts now. Now, if you are interested in checking out Megan is Missing, it is currently not available on Netflix or any subscription services like that. You'll have to rent it on Amazon. That's what we did for a buck ninety nine. It's also available on YouTube and some others. This is Tony Gardner, and you are listening to another terrifying episode of The Boo Crew. time he took a bride but this time in order to become the parents of a human baby they'll need just the right woman jennifer tilly production is underway on the new horror flick chucky goes psycho you know i should have played aaron brockovich i could have done it without the wonder bra in planned parenthood timing is everything so you'll have to hurry that shouldn't be a problem for you 
This fall, Chucky's back, and he's delivering us some evil. Come to Papa. Go ahead, scream. That's all we need. Another victim crawls onto the gurney for a Boo Crew autopsy. Joining the Boo Crew via the Speakeasy Studio is an absolute legend. A special effects and makeup master who's brought so much magic to the screen and created those very moments that make us love this genre so much. Iconography like The Return of the Living Dead, The Blob, the award-winning work in Sam Raimi's 1990 film Darkman, Army of Darkness, Freak, Tocus Pocus, The Craft, Batman and Robin, The Addams Family Film, Seed of Chucky, Zombieland, Happy Death Day, the new film Freaky, and so much more. He's transformed Sasha Baron Cohen, Gwyneth Paltrow, and Shallow Hal. Comedy films like There's Something About Mary and the Hangover, worked with Katy Perry, The Foo Fighters, Slayer, created the iconic helmets for Daft Punk, James Franco's infamous arm for 127 hours that made people pass out in the theater. His work has done so much more than entertain and bewilder us, though, and fool us and delight us, but it's transcended the screen and has become part of the fabric of culture. What an outstanding achievement and what an honor to have here with us from Alterian Inc., Mr. Tony Gardner. Thanks for having me. Hey, man. Tony, thank you so much, not only for taking the time to talk with us for a bit today, but we're we're so incredibly humbled. Your work is literally emblazoned into the passion we all have for this genre, and it's just incredible to talk yeah. with you. That's cool. Yeah. It, all of a sudden, it's like, well, that's a long list of stuff. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I've been around for a while. And it doesn't even scratch the surface either. So yeah. we'd like to just start out by finding out what films were your gateway down this path was it even through horror what what were those films yes and no i mean planet of the apes movies they came out in the 60s i didn't see it till in the 70s that was super inspiring just because it was like unreal there was sort of like the one-two punch of alien and then american werewolf in london and i always thought of alien as sort of a haunted house movie and the monster was an alien instead of a traditional you know monster sort of design and and i just thought it was really cool and the very first things that i did i i copied a makeup of a chimp it looked horrible on myself and tried to learn foam latex and then i built a chest burster out of cotton and latex and wooden dowels and um did a werewolf on myself with glowing red eyes as a halloween costume all when i was uh, around a senior in high school and uh, that got me all excited and, and sort of shifted gears for me. I'd done little weird films with my friends over the weekends and stuff. And I really got into the, the effects side of it a lot more. I mean, I'd always been into magic and performance there. So it, this was kind of sort of a way to connect all of it, you know. And I mean, it, I lived in Ohio, so it wasn't anything that you could perceive as a as a way to make a living it was really more like oh that's the weird guy with the weird hobby and then figured out a way to come to california and get somebody to pay me to do what i love to do this is obviously before youtube videos or really having any resources to learn about exactly how to do this stuff what was informing your abilities to just play and, and create back at that point it was, it was really all just what came out in print. Like Alien put out this great print book. Like they had a lot of behind the scenes stuff in it. And you'd go for lobby cards or, or you know, when Fangoria came out, it, 
buy two copies of that and cut up one of them and save the pictures and keep the other one to read because there was no way to make a lobby and look stuff up. You couldn't just go to the library and well, I guess you could look up werewolves, but I think it'd be a lot more limiting than what you could find, you know, in a genre bookstore. Well, not that there were any genre bookstores in Ohio either. You know? <laughs> was there any film in particular that set it off for you and made you give you the confidence to, wow, you know, I think I can try and do some of this myself. Honestly, it, it was, I, I was really obsessed with alien and, and I copied it. I built a chest burster and I built a face hugger. And when I realized that I could copy what I'd seen pretty well, that was sort of inspiring as far as being motivation to keep doing more, you know, it's like getting feedback on your work, like a third party perspective, almost like that looks like the face hugger from alien. It's like, all right, I'm set. Here we go. And then I just started trying more stuff and doing my own stuff. But there was, there was like a stage book, Richard Corson's stage makeup and all the concepts and processes and materials were the same as what they were doing for some of these theatrical shows. And I remember that was, it was like that Tom Savini's book, the alien book, and then whatever else I could find from Starlog or Fangoria. I remember seeing the, the Starlog with Rick Baker on the cover and the incredible melting man masks going, what the hell is this? And, you know, then it was, take the bike, you know, ride the bike up to the, to that store once a month and, and look for that magazine. Cause you know, that was all there was really. Were your parents supportive of your passion? Yeah. I, I'd like to say they were probably more tolerant <laughs> and supportive. Um, I had a, I had a carpeted bedroom and there's patches where a lot of the carpeting sort of trimmed up a little bit with cuticle scissors because I'd get latex or whatever on the floor. But I, I would run foam in the, in the oven in our kitchen and do weird stuff. And it all smells like shit. I mean, all of it. You know, my mom came home. And it's like, all right, the, the kitchen smells like a litter box exploded. What the hell? What did you do today? And it's like, oh, I, I got the foam latex and I'm trying it out. Everything was pretty stinky and pretty messy. And, and my parents put up with a lot and um, sort of let me find my way, which I totally appreciate. Yeah, no, that's outstanding. So you yeah. ended up being a part of Stan Winston's crew for Aliens in 86. What was yeah, that, that was experience like? like? That, was, that was pretty great. Wow. <laughs> it, it was weird because uh. I had worked... I'd worked building this stuff on my own and sort of like obsessing on, on the, the specifics of the detail of the suit and stuff like that. And then um, when we got, when I was hired by Stan, I was the first person hired on, on alien. So it was pretty much just me, Stan and Jim Cameron in the front rooms of the shop. Wow. And Jim was figuring out the queen and how to strap two stunt people together to make this thing go. And I was working on the chest burster and Stan was doing like design illustrations and stuff for the queen. And it, it was really casual and really relaxed. And all of a sudden, all this reference material started showing up. And a lot of it from the original, the, you know, crates would show up and, and uh, it'd be the, the arms from the original alien suit. 
And I was just completely geeked out, like over the moon. It was just like so exciting, you know. And then as the as the show ramped up and we got into stuff further and and the Stan's regular guys were able to move back onto this show because they were finishing Invaders from Mars. It's like all of a sudden all this there was like this explosion of, you know, a head's being sculpted over here, or the hands for the suit are there. I'm doing the chest burster, Alex sculpting the egg over in the other unit. And it was just, it was kind of like heaven. It's you know? amazing. And I had been at Rick's prior to that, Rick Baker's for a while. And I remember when Stan got aliens, I was like, oh my God, if I could just go over there for like two weeks, just to say I worked on it. And then I got to go to Stan's and I got to work on a ton of stuff and do the chest burster myself. And then Stan's guys sculpted the miniature queen and then they did like some silicone molds of those. And then that all shipped off to uh, this guy named Doug Beswick, this genius mechanical designer, to do the animatronic miniatures of the Queen and the Power Loader and, and Sigourney Weaver. So I kind of went over with that stuff. And then we did clay pours out of those molds and did stone molds. And then I was sort of the cosmetic supervisor, for lack of a better term, figuring out how to make it work. And move and what part of the head to make flexible and how to deal with the weight. And then when uh, Doug and Jim Belhovic were building all the parts for the mini power loader, most of which was like wood and Bondo. I mean, like the, I swear that thing's like not, the original, it's like 90% Bondo. And uh, we would mold all those pieces and then I would rerun them. I would do fiberglass shells and then pass that off to the mechanical guys to sort of dress around their mechanics, really. And then we, you know, we had a guy, um, Stuart Land, sculpting a little Sigourney Weaver. And I brought in a bunch of people from stands who didn't go to London to shoot. And they sort of helped, like, re-sculpt the, the pieces that we needed for the miniature one. And um, got to supervise that until it, it left for location. But it was really fun. I mean, it was such a great time. And I just found a bunch of faxes actually to Stan in England where I was trying to figure out how to subdivide the head to make the face flexible so it could turn and then how to do the back of the head lightweight so that it, it wouldn't bog down the mechanics. And we realized that what I was figuring out in miniature was what they would have to do with the full-size one. So it was kind of like got to do the prototyping. But when we were sending it out, they hadn't decided on a teeth color. It was either black or white. They kept going back and forth. So I said, well, I'm just going to cast them up in clear. And then you guys can figure it out later. You know, you're not going to have black underneath a white paint. You're not going to have white underneath a black paint and have to put so much paint on it. You're going to obliterate it. So we, we did poor man's rotocast uh, in this little head with these long fangs and just cast all of them clear and sent it off like that. And then... You know, we, we saw the, some photos of the full-size one later. We're like, holy shit, they kept the teeth clear. That's cool. <laughs> it was like so great, nice. you know? I really wish I could have gone to have the experience of being on set with it, but it was not to be. But all Stan's regular crew went and uh, obviously did an amazing job and launched a franchise at that point. How amazing is it that you who were so inspired by it became an integral part of building the rest of the lore for the whole thing. It's amazing. It's kind of weird. You know, it's kind of nice. 
I was just wondering if you knew how the alien acid blood uh, burning through the ship effect was achieved, and also the how you know the uh, the facehugger how it would jump out of the pods and attack the crew members. How are those effects achieved? I was told that the facehugger was pretty much just a hand puppet and a guy just ramming it into somebody's face. <laughs> <laughs> and then the acid blood in the first one, uh, the floor section was styrofoam. So they poured a solvent on it and it just literally dissolved through and dripped like, it, like the material normally does. It breaks down with acetone or, or anything like that. So it was, it was practical. I mean, that's what was so cool about everything we were doing back then is you had to figure it out for real because there wasn't, there wasn't any other option. There wasn't even a concept of another option. I mean, when we were figuring out the power loader at Doug Beswick's, the miniature one, they were sending us pictures of the fittings that, that Jim Cameron was having on the full-size one. And it started with a big giant stunt guy on painter stilts. And they started building from there. And there's a guy in it. There's a guy standing behind Sigourney Weaver. And his face is in that grill that's right behind her head. And that's how he sees. And those two antennas, they go up on each side of of the main torso. Those are actually wires that go up to the ceiling that hold it up. So, I mean, Jim Cameron is pretty much a genius. When, when he was trying to figure out the full-size queen alien, he mocked it up with, you know, those little wooden figures, those posable figures you can buy in an art store. He was like taping those together and figuring out extensions on arms and stuff like that. And then um, the guys built sort of a hanging rig to put two stunt guys in, sort of back-to-back at almost, not quite a 45 to each other. And that became the torso of the Queen Alien. And then off of that was built just with foam core and wood and rope. And then I think we covered all of it in trash bags. Just a, a prototype mock-up of, of the Queen. And we shot, well, Jim shot some footage in Stan's parking lot of one of the guys pretending to be, you know, one of the characters in the film with the Queen, like sort of rising up in the background behind it and putting its arms out. And it was, it was literally a camera crane and the head hung below the camera crane. If you turn the wheel on that, you could turn the wheel of that turned the head underneath it. And then the crane up and down controlled the body up and down. And there were rods in for the feet. And there were these two guys inside it to be the little short arms in the middle. And then to have their other arm extended fully and their hand actually be the elbow of the queen and they held like a ski pole with a big glove on the end of it, you know, for the mock-up. And that's how he figured out like in a day, this works. And he went from that to designing and then building the, the real thing. And the power loader was exactly the same thing, except it was a lot easier to adjust the mock-ups because it's, it was just literally like white sheets of foam core, just, cut out and taped together and let's build a box and, you know, and figure it all out. So they would send us these pictures of this stunt guy gradually getting more and more covered up with stuff, figuring out the power loader machine itself so that we could match it. You know, it had to work first. And the best way for it to work was this big guy inside it. And 
that meant that there were certain adjustments that were made in the anatomy to make that make sense and we had to follow it so the again the the full-size mock-up for function had to happen first and then the form was built on that so it was a great learning experience you know because you always hear form follows function and and this was literally a, a non-stop class in that and doing cool shit we go and watch these things that have just become iconics and, and, and classics. What is it about it that computer graphics can never emulate? I always thought my son Austin put it best when he was a little kid. He's like, that stuff just looks so liquidy. And I was like, wow, you, you're right. There's no weight landing and the sense of mass. It looks great and the texture is great and, and it moves great, but, but just that sense of like something contacting the ground and, and looking like it's really planting and the muscles and the thighs moving to adjust for the new stance. I mean, things that you might not consciously be aware of, but when it's not there, you know, it's not there. So I, I feel like it's, it, it's kind of like doing a, a makeup of an old man. It's like everybody knows what an old man looks like. So if you do it wrong, everybody's going to know. It's like do a, do a makeup for a Cyclops centaur. Everybody's going to go, oh, it looks great. No matter what it looks like, because there's literally no point of reference other than maybe a horse, you know, but if you're copying something in, in the real world and it has to look real, if it can't move right and have weight, it, it just doesn't work. And it doesn't work sometimes with mechanical stuff too. You know, I always thought one of the things that Stan did that was the coolest was the velociraptors because it was a guy in a suit. When the feet hit the ground, they hit the ground. And when he had to adjust his body posture for the weight of how he landed, or maybe the, the, fact that his feet were not the way he wanted to put them down it it was real you know and then you look at the t-rex and go that's super impressive but like my son said the thighs and everything look liquidy it's it's like muscles are moving but it's not quite there yet and then a film comes along every so often where you you know like Gollum in lord of the rings where you just go holy shit this is miles beyond where anything's been up to this point you know and and you you see what they're able to do and then as time's gone on i mean there are more people that are genuine artists that are getting involved and it's looking more and more beautiful i mean the fact that you can shoot a film and not need a set nowadays is pretty amazing it's it's really down to humans and anatomy and muscle movement and varying weight and stuff like that 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 things need to get fine-tuned in but it's all happening so it's exciting one of the first people that you got a chance to work with professionally was rick baker how did he enter your life i was a student at usc i was a sophomore and uh i used a class on cinema as an excuse to meet people i wanted to meet i wrote a paper on mechanical effects in the film industry as a character I'm like all right well, i'm going to meet steven spielberg because et's a character and he's the main character and so was the shark and jaws i'm going to meet carlo rambaldi because he did 
the animatronics in the alien head, and he also ended up doing E.T.'s head. And he brought an animatronic character to life. And then Rick Baker had done just done American Werewolf in London. And uh, the main character goes through this amazing animatronic transformation into a wolf. And I just figured, I'm going to use this paper, and I'm going to meet all the people I want to meet. And, and I did, eventually. Although, when I went to Rick Baker's house and knocked on the door, this guy answered that wasn't him. It was his dad. And I kept staring past him at this painting on the wall. There's this giant photo of a gorilla, but like lit with a green light. And he kept going like that while because I'm, I'm not I'm talking to him, but I'm not you know I'm not looking at him. He's like, "Oh, are you looking at the at the painting?" And I was like, "That's a painting." He said, "Yeah." He's like, "I did it." And he started explaining how he did it and how he used like a pizza cutter as a roller to paint the hair onto it so you could get layers of hair and make it look directional and stuff like that. And I was just like, this is like one freaking amazing family. And he explained that Rick was in, Rick was in London working on Greystoke, so I wouldn't really be able to interview him or, or meet him or use him as part of my paper. I still did, but just not with any interview stuff. And, and then I had the opportunity to interview him afterwards once he came back. And he was a little more interested in how I'd figured out how to do stuff in Ohio, given that there was nothing there, you know. Had a great meeting at his place, and we talked for a while. And I was like, this is awesome. I, I got to meet somebody I, I think is amazing, and, and I can go on with my life. You know, I checked those three people off the list. I went back to Ohio for like two weeks prior to the next school year starting up. And um, I was home for like a day and Rick Baker called my parents' house in Ohio. And I was like, how the hell did he figure out how to track me down? I never asked him actually. But he basically said he was starting a project and uh, they needed a runner, somebody to sweep the floors, take out the trash, pick up supplies, it was only four weeks worth of work, but he said, you know, you're kind of all over the place. You want to do music and makeup and filmmaking. And, you know, at the end of four weeks, at least you'll know if this is something you really want to do or not. And I thought that was great to be offered the opportunity. So I got on a plane and I'm like, when does it start? And he's like, well, we started two days ago. And this ended up being Michael Jackson's thriller. So like the next day I was on a plane and, and, figuring out how to get a car and how to be able to get to his place and all that stuff to his shop. And, and I started right away and I was trying to, you know, and then school started up two weeks later. I'm like, I can do this. And then my, this work schedule just went to hell because there was so much stuff to build. And I, I got pulled into the crew helping build stuff. And I got to build all the, I think like 30 some zombie masks, you know, running Rick's, incredible melting man molds and cutting those pieces up and using them with the back of the head from this mold and cotton and latex texturing things. Um, and then passing them off to Margaret uh, Prentice to paint. And then I started doing bladders, did the bladders for the transformation. My four weeks turned into eight weeks. He had me hire somebody else to be the runner so that I could be part of the crew and then um, I got to build a zombie on myself to be 
in it. And then I, I ended up in it all over the place. My arm falls off and um, I'm the first zombie out of the grave. I'm in the theater scene as myself. And I'm in the dance number, but I, I didn't have to dance. All I had to do was like slap my butt. Right. And look over <laughs> my shoulder with the camera. I'm like, I, I can do that, but I can't do anything else. Just because he liked the, the face of the, the makeup that I had. So, so I'm in the dance scene as a quick little cutaway face. And then John Landis knew that I was interested in filmmaking and uh, invited me to come watch them edit the behind the scenes stuff. So basically I got to be like, I got to go from ground level, sweeping the floor, taking out the trash to building stuff that was on screen on the talent and then on myself and then building additional stuff. I got to go on set. I got to be on set every day. Then I got to act in it. Then John Landis was inviting me to watch post-production and how that all worked because he knew I was interested in filmmaking. And that was it. I mean, that was like a couple months of like, this is the greatest experience of my life. I'm dropping out of school. You know, I'm, I'm focusing on this full time. And um, it, it was literally like a life changer. And I was 18. Wow. So, and I'd never been on a set, obviously. I was kind of off the boat from Ohio. So everything was pretty new, but I just assumed everybody would be as cool as Rick and John and Michael and everybody else were and be so collaborative and, and friendly and inviting, you know, and teaching and, and all that kind of stuff. And I've, I learned since that wasn't the case, but it was such a great way to start. I've always sort of aspired to create that same sort of environment you know, work environment, both in the shop and when we're on set, because we should be having fun doing this anyhow. So, you know, why not make it fun if you're in a position where you can help steer the boat? Why not help make it a good time? But that first job was where I learned a lot of what's possible and what I could do and what I wanted to do. What was the thrill like of seeing something you created on screen for the first time? It was really weird because we had a screening in Westwood of the film and Michael was there and like Eddie Murphy showed up and was being super nice to him because he'd just recently done a bunch of parodies of Michael for Saturday Night Live or something. And he just wanted to make sure that, uh, that it was understood that it was all in fun. We were sitting close enough we could hear all this going on. It was a very small theater, you know? Um, so we got to watch it on screen and it was 15 minutes long. It was like, that was really cool. And it was with all the people that worked on it and their friends and family. It's like, this is a great experience. It's like, well, that's kind of the end of it. Okay. We saw it. Now it's going to come out on TV and that'll kind of be the end of it. You know, cut to <laughs> <laughs> most famous video now, of all time. Yeah. But I, I remember we shot in October it came out in November. It was like almost before Thanksgiving. And I remember going home for Christmas. This was the days when VHS was a new thing, you know. I had a VHS copy of it. Not because anybody gave me one, because they, they had already started selling them, you know. So I actually had the video, and I remember taking it back to my high school and showing it to my art teacher because she'd been an inspiration. And um, 
watching her watch it, I started to realize there was more to it. And then she wanted me to show it to the class and talk to the class. And then the theater department asked me to do the same thing. And it's like, well, people really like this and it's, it's getting a great response. It's really fun to be a part of this. Still, again, not thinking it's just going to sort of live forever. It's been forever. I mean, Hocus Pocus was kind of the same thing. Actually, that was kind of even a little more interesting because it came out in the middle of summer and it bombed. It did like zero dollars. So a lot of people don't remember that, right? It's such a beloved movie, but when it first came out. Yeah, it's like the, The Wizard of Oz bombing or It's a Wonderful Life. They're classics that people literally love now. And the audience that was in the theaters the years that it was released didn't like it, didn't, didn't want it, had no interest in it, you know, for whatever reason. And, and we just rebuilt Billy Butcherson, the zombie from Hocus Pocus on Doug Jones for an online special that Bette Midler produced to raise money for charity. And Doug Jones and I were both tripping out because like, would you have thought 27 years ago we'd be doing this again? And I, and I had saved um, his wig and his wardrobe, Billy's original wardrobe was on a display figure that I'd given to uh, the producer, David Kirshner, who also came up with the idea for the story. So, you know, we sort of begged David if we could borrow the shirt and the jacket and just sort of recreate the rest of it. So he was in like his original clothes from the waist up and his original wig and the wig still had leaves in it. And it's just like, this is really surreal. And we'd gone from, you know, 27 years ago being in the, the jankiest plywood walled makeup trailer, just like the smallest, cheapest little thing parked over in the corner. It's the zombie trailer. And now we're in a makeup room in my shop with, lights and people filming us and and we just kept kind of laughing because it's like this is the last thing that that either of us would have expected from that but we 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 loved the character and we we loved every minute of it it was really nice to 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 revisit it and we've worked together so many times since that it was really fun to to go full circle full circle and come all the way back to it the boo crew will be right back the bizarre world you met on the planet of the apes was just the beginning. The only good human is a dead human. 20th Century Fox takes you beneath the planet of the apes. Can a world long endure half ape, half man? The answer lies deep beneath the planet of the apes. In color, rated G, general audiences. Now playing at two theaters, the Uptown Theater and the Fox Olympus Drivers. It's like one, literally one of my favorite movies and it's one of my kids favorite movies. So it's just so crazy to me to think that it wasn't a huge success like it is now. What happened to everything from that movie? Like I see very little out there as far as like props and makeup. Like It's funny because I still don't know if Disney's figured out that it has the 
giant audience that it does. We have a Halloween tree in our house. My kids grew up with it and assumed everybody had a Halloween tree. So they eventually figured out how weird we were. But I, I would search for ornaments or something I could turn into an ornament to put on the tree to represent Hocus Pocus. And I swear to you, the, the first product that I ever saw came out last year. It was like the cauldron and the three witches, but they're like painted on a flat piece of plastic behind this 3D cauldron. And, and that was it, you know? Uh, but then there was this explosion all of a sudden. It's like Spencer's and Spirit Halloween of pillows and candles. And, you know, somebody was obviously licensing it. And then we saw a Billy Butcherson mask. And then we saw a Billy Butcherson, like a yard decoration where it looks like he's coming out of the ground. So I feel like just within the last couple of years, there's sort of this awareness now that people really like it. It's funny, but there hasn't been anything. The reason you haven't seen anything is there's literally been nothing out there. The creation of Alterion really begins with 1985's Return of the Living Dead. Walk us through that opportunity. Well, that's a kind of a weird story, actually, because it, it sort of came about in a roundabout way. I had done teeth for Brian Peck, who, who was also a student at USC. He was cast to play Scuzz. He's like, I look like a preppy. I have you know straight white teeth and and I'm clean cut and I need to grow my hair out and maybe we can do a mohawk and but if you could make like some really gross teeth like stained for me to take to one of the to one of the readings that would be really cool. So I did, and then they ended up making it into the movie. Dan O'Bannon loved the teeth. He's like, this is great. It really sort of helps make the character. I'd really like to meet your dentist friend. Brian, Brian didn't tell him that it was this 21-year-old or, or whatever. Yeah, 21. Guy who was, you know, in the process of dropping out of school. So this is right um, after Thriller, pretty, pretty close to, right? Yeah, we had gone from Thriller to Cocoon, and we were working on Cocoon at the time. Greg Cannon was running that, but it was in Rick's shop. Um, and Rick was sort of like the artistic director. So I was full steam on that. and. I think I was still living in a frat house at USC at the time. I dropped out of school, but I didn't tell everybody. <laughs> I dropped out. Like, I, didn't, I was a drummer in the marching band, and I never told them I dropped out of school. So I could still go to all the games yeah, and yeah. do all the traveling. <laughs> all the benefits. Uh, yeah, yeah and, 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 you know, sure. have a good time. And all the games are on the weekend, so that's really not going to screw with that. Uh, with uh, work, right? And drum sectionals were at night, so I can figure this out. I, I made it work for a whole year. So I was working. I dropped out of school. I was working at Rick's. I was still in the marching band. Brian needed some teeth. I made him the teeth. Dan liked them. Said, let me meet your dentist friend. Brian was in heaven setting this up because it was this meeting at Dan O'Bannon's house, and it was Beverly Randolph, the, the lead actress, Brian, Dan O'Bannon, waiting for the dentist friend. And then there's a knock on the door and the door, Dan opens the door and it's me standing there. And I'm already an alien dork, you know, so I'm, in, I'm thrilled that, you know, I just got to see this guy and I don't care how the rest of the day goes. <laughs> um, he's looking past me at my car like maybe I drove somebody there for his meeting and i'm supposed to be making sure it's the right house or something 
And Brian bursts out laughing and goes, Dan, that's my dentist friend. <laughs> and so we have this meeting and, and we talk for a bit and uh, I showed him pictures of, of things that, that I had made besides teeth. And one of them was this, this dead woman with long blonde hair. It was just like a prop for a Halloween decoration. And he's like, oh, this stuff's really cool. He's like, what I want to do is experiment with a different set of teeth for, for Beverly to see what the change in her appearance would be. So I was hired to literally do some makeup tests for the show. And that was it. And then I got a call. It was, it was probably a couple of weeks later. And they said, Dan wants to come down and talk to you. And he wants you to meet Graham Henderson, the producer. Because there's this company that, that went bankrupt that was building all the animatronic figures for his movie. And there's this thing called the Half Corpse, and it shoots in two weeks. And he feels like you could build it. So I'm like, I'm there. I, I went down at night that night, and they were shooting a scene with all the rain machines and all the lights outside the You Need a Medical Supply place. And I sat down with Graham Henderson. Uh, who was the producer, big British guy, very intimidating, super nice. I mean, a, a wonderful guy, but at the time I was terrified. And he's basically explaining this shoots in two weeks, this has to work, you know, blah, blah, blah. And I'm just like, like this. And, and I took it on. He's like, but if you want to do this, you're also going to have to do the split dogs because we need somebody to do those too. I'm paraphrasing all this to the best of my memory. That's my disclaimer right now. But basically, I was told in order to do the half corpse, do the split dogs. And I had all these grandiose, oh, the split dog is going to be a black Labrador and, you know, be this really big thing. I had to make four of them. The very next day, like reality hit, it's like, you're on cocoon in the day and you don't start this till night. And I talked to Rick about renting space and supplies from him and reimbursing him and being able to work in, the, in his shop at night. I would take all my stuff upstairs and put it in the storeroom during the storage loft during the day. And then at night, I'd pull it out and work on it and got some people to help me. But it was just so much to do. There were two versions of the half corpse, the one that comes through the, through the window that gets cut in half. And then there was the one on the table. Um, and then the split dogs and the, the half corpse shot in two weeks. And it was just an insane, I'm like punching here in the forehead. And I remember um, Scott Ressler, who was helping me build it. We had to take it to, to set. And he's like, I'm trying to like glue in fishing line and this curved piece of wire into the eyelid to be able to make like the eyelids move. He's like, dude, we got to get in the car. We got to go. It's, it's, it's time. This is it. So we like loaded it all up. And I don't think we slept that night at all. And Rick and Greg had given me the last couple of days off really kindly um, so that I could get this stuff done. But I did like two, two Labrador split dogs that ironically you don't even see because they're black and they're up under sheets on the top shelf where the little ones were. And then I did two little ones. Only one of them falls. Um, but I was building that one in my kitchen um, using like toggle, you know, the, the hinge piece of like a toggle bolt was like the knees and the shoulders. And I use a marble for the eyes. It was just, it was just insanity for like two weeks. But after I took it and brought it in, 
I mean, my, my set experience had been thriller at this point. I brought it in and we literally just put it down in the arts department on a blanket. We carried it in on a blanket, laid the blanket on the floor and, um, and showed it to Bill Stout, the production designer who'd done the illustrations for it. Bill's like, oh, that's great. It looks just like, you know, the drawing and blah, blah, blah. And he'd given notes and stuff while we were, while we were doing it too. And it had been a great experience. Um, and then somebody came in and said, Graham wants to see you in his office. And, and uh, so I go down the hall and the stages and the offices and the arts department, everything was all in one big building in Burbank. And um, Graham has me sit down across from him and he's in his giant desk. At least that's how I remember it. I'm in this tiny little chair. And again, that's at least how I remember it. That's how I felt. And he's like, so what would you like your screen credit to read? I was like, holy shit. This is like a real thing. And, and this is amazing. And um, I told him. We talked for a bit. And he, he complimented the work. And it was really cool. And I realized that the, the gruffness three weeks or two weeks earlier was the fact that he was the producer and and if this didn't work they were screwed and and he was just you know sharing the honest truth but i took it like a little more aggressively and i think i i used it as motivation it's like i'm going to show these people and this is going to be you know and and it was a driving thing for me but it was like sculpt the head in a day mold it the next night you know, stuff like that. It was just a crazy experience. But after Graham gave me a screen credit, then they all asked me, you know, who do you want to have puppeteer it? Again, I'm t completely green. And I was like, well, let's have Brian Peck operate the mouth because he's an actor and he'd be able to memorize dialogue and he'll do a good job. And and uh, I'll do the head because that that's the most miserable place for anybody to be underneath it. And then let's have Bill Stout do the do the tail, the the spine, and do the spinal fluid. And he was thrilled with that. And then we all sort of traded off and had other people help out, like Scott Ressler helped with the hands. One of the hands is pinned down by rope and doesn't move as much as the other, because I didn't finish the mechanics in this section. And then the other hand can do this and, and do a lot more stuff. But again, we just ran out of time. We had a little Bill Sturgeon had made all these little joints for the for the fingers and there just wasn't enough time to do it but if you look at the hands it's like the pull strings are the tendons in the palm side rubber bands are the tendons on the back side but that's how the, that's what made the finger return back to a neutral position after you pulled it down so it's like this is great it's a rotten body and all this stuff shows and the the functionality of these pieces is really what the human body is so so let's just put the tiniest little bits of skin on it here and there and just stain it all up the spinal fluid was an afterthought because i i had used a piece of clear vinyl tubing to thread all the sections that the discs of the spine on so that there was something in the middle to keep them from like sliding up or down and then they had like sort of like a ball and socket thing into the one above it and just a little cut foam disc for the, the material between them. And I realized if we put a, a syringe on this, we could, this thing could like leak goo or something. And, you know, people loved it. 
Yeah, but it was completely an afterthought. How was the the wiggle of the spinal cord done? Was that a fishing line or what was it? There was two. It's basically fishing line. There's two lines down the left and right side. What was nice is that it's laying on a table, so the weight's supported. We're just pulling it to the left and to the right with those two strings. And if you pulled on both of them, you could kind of get the thing to sort of like raise up a little bit. So we were able to put a lot of life into it. Um, we just let Bill alone on that. It's like, just punctuate some sentences with it. And he had, you know, he went to town and had a blast. But it's funny, if you watch the film, I'm in it. Like, there's a couple of shots where I'm in it. My, the t-shirt that I'm wearing is the same color as the drape that went over the embalming table. And I'm literally just like hunched down. Like, and there's my hair and there's the, my back, probably in like three shots. And you could see it. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's plain as day. Once you see it, you can't like not notice it. But it was one of those things where how do we hide him? The bottom of the table is open. They came up with a drape for part of it, and they, they taped a metal um, cafeteria tray underneath the rim of the, the embalming table up towards the head end to, to offer some more metal to sort of like let me hide behind it. And they just tried to like frame me out. But there's a couple of wide shots where the camera's moving and they wanted the, the thing to move. And I'm on the camera side of the, of the table. And it's like, oh, there he is. <laughs> yeah. Now I got to go wow. back and watch it. That's awesome. And then you ended yeah. up working on Brian Peck actually went and did his own film, The Willies. And you worked on, on The Willies as well, right? Yeah. He got uh, Bill Stout to design a creature. Bill had been the production designer on Return of Living Dead. And then he got me to do the creature and some makeup effects. James Karen's in it. And I did a neck flap, like a disguise mask sort of thing on, on James Karen and, and a couple other little things like some fly costumes and stuff. It was like Brian's labor of love. It's like, all right, I have $0 and I'm going to call on my friends. And he'd work with Sean Astin on a TV series. And he literally like got all these people together. Hey, let's make a movie. And, and he did it. He succeeded. It's a great one, man. Anyone who hasn't seen it, you gotta go look up yeah. the willies. It's uh, spe- yeah. man, that fly one too is uh, that's an insane story. Very dark too. What they're able to yeah. do, right? Yeah. And it, it was Brian just doing it independently, so he could do whatever he wanted. And he got Catherine Freeman in it. That's where I met her, I think. And then when we did Hocus Pocus, I, I was at the screening because we obviously didn't work in any of the classroom stuff. Like, oh my god, there's the lady from Brian's movie. You know, it's like all these things as time's gone by, I realized the world is really small, but right at the beginning, there were a lot of really cool overlaps like that, that made things really fun. Was the first time you met Sam Raimi on Evil Dead 2? Yes. Yeah. And I was working for Doug Beswick, who we'd done the power loader and the, all the miniature stuff for aliens. And um, Doug was doing a, a couple sequences for Evil Dead 2. One was the big, we call it the rotten apple head that came through the door. Um, they had the faces of all the people that it had possessed or stolen their souls. We did a giant head. We did a tree branch that grabbed Bruce Campbell. And then um, separately, Doug's miniature guys went and built the miniature of the cabin. And Steve Wang sculpted a little version of the doll who's had, you know, the, um, the woman who can take her head off her body's all rotten and her head looks good. His name is completely escaping me right now. 
so we we were into a whole bunch of different things on that which was really fun and then i got to go to set and um deal with the tree branch and and rotten applehead and uh, shoot a bunch of blood and goo out of an eyeball onto uh, bruce campbell i'm like this is fun and they were all just a crack up like nonstop. they were having so much fun doing what they were doing sam remembered me and and uh down the road you know got to do got to do some more stuff for him yeah well dark man was one of those things yeah 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 was the look of dark man was that something that you got to play with based on reading script and formulating what that would look like in your own mind or do they the directors and writers usually have a they meet with you and talk to you about exactly what um sam gave me the script and said read this and let me know what you think and i'm sort of a visual guy and usually when i read a story I, I sort of see it in my mind and i saw what he looked like i mean it, it, he's described as half his face gets pushed into a vat of acid and eaten away and different things go on and it's like okay all that's going to be reflected in the the design lines of his face it's just what kind of performer does this go on i assumed it was going to be bruce campbell and i just had this image stuck in my head with you know really angular cheekbones and a pointy chin and i actually went and sculpted it the collar up and i took that into one of the meetings i'm like this is kind of how i see him and i can't draw for shit i can barely sculpt so i i, I took this sculpture in and it it sounds like that's great i love it and he had said that he was thinking if he could do whatever he wanted, it would almost be the poster from Evil Dead 2, that skull with eyes in it, like completely decimated. And mine was basically, here's a you know, part of a human face, and the rest is all eaten away, and we're, we're seeing a lot of skull. And I was like, you could do this as a puppet, too. And then it was this whole casting thing with Universal and who they wanted and who they didn't want, meeting all these actors. And then I remember they cast Liam Neeson. I'm like, what does he look like? And they sent me over a picture of this big, strong guy with this square head and, and, a, and a, bro a broken nose. And I was like, oh my God, this design, there's no way this design would ever look decent on this guy's face. It would look like somebody wearing a mask. It needs to have started out as him, so we've got to follow all his forms. And I remember at the time being disappointed, actually, honestly. And then once we started developing the makeup, once we had a, a life cast of him and started developing the look in more detail, I realized that everything that I thought was a disadvantage was, was something that would help define the character. It was like, it was genius that they cast Liam and, and the fact that he had like a square head and a broken nose to be able to, to, to pull that jawline and, and that nose and stuff through the, through the makeup and make it part of the character made it look more like him obviously and helped us ground the look of the whole thing in reality so it it ended up being a lot less probably theatrical than we might have done it with that first version and, and a little more realistic but then we we sort of like amped up it's it takes place in a cartoon world so then the colors kind of got ratcheted up and we did contact lenses on Liam's eyes. Cause they were like sort of a gray blue, which worked great for warm and cozy Peyton Westlake. 
But then when it needed to be the scarier, more intense guy, they almost got lost in this vibrant reds and purples and, you know, all the stuff that was going on in Darkman's face. So he punched up the blue, like almost obnoxiously. And it worked great and it, and it helped balance him out. I mean, I'd never done an overlapping prosthetic makeup till then. And I'd never figured out a character that had to last for any amount of screen time, let alone go through like a character arc. So it was really fun figuring out something that could be attractive and scary and mean and then sympathetic. I mean, it, it had to hit all these these notes visually as well. And Bill Pope was pretty instrumental in the way he would light certain scenes. And Sam and, and Liam would figure out a pose that featured one side more than the other for specific scenes where they had to be, you know, meaner or more sympathetic. And it all, um, it all worked out really well. Um, it was a really great experience. It was, it was definitely a learning experience. And we did actually build a puppet of Liam that got ruined because Sam wanted to see light coming through the, the tendons of his mouth in a profile shot. We did a lot of stuff that we'd never done before. And, and um, we had a blast, honestly. You inherited the Child's Play franchise with the fifth film, Seed of Chucky, in 2004. What were the challenges in taking something so well known and cranking it up a notch and making it your own? The biggest challenge was this was still the, the era of there's no reference material. And, and we, we were given no molds or, or reference material from any of the first films. Universal had these rotten, like, stunt bodies of, of Chucky, like, locked in this box in their archives. And there was literally nothing else. So we were out buying the DVD and freeze framing it and taking pictures off the, the TV screen. Wow. Using that as our reference to, to recreate the look. And it's such a great design, the, the Bride of Chucky design with all the stitches and stuff like that. It, it was fun to copy, but it's nice because there's like landmarks and there's things that really help you sort of like dial in the design. With Glenn, you had seen him as a newborn and, and the only thing we had to stick to there was pointed teeth and a pointy chin. And the rest was sort of a free for all. And he's sort of David Bowie meets Frankenstein meets I don't know what. And then Tiffany had already been established as well. It was harder with her trying to figure out an exact match. All the wardrobe was being done in England while we were doing all the, all the body stuff in the United States. So there wasn't any chance to like figure out joints and how things moved and where to hide things and stuff like that. But I, I remember asking for one liberty on it. I said, can we give her a black choker so they can literally just slice her neck right there so that her head can rotate more and look up and down easier without having to pull all that silicone, you know, because you have all the cleavage and you have, it's all this one big giant piece all the way up to the top of her head. It's like, if we cut that right there and hide it, we'll get a lot more movement out of it. And they said yes to that. It, it really helped us because Chucky's head ends in a very similar spot. And we were able to sort of like mass produce all three of the, the characters sort of at the same time. But it was 
three months of chaos. It should have been at least twice that. We had three characters to build and duplicates of each one of the animatronic substructures in case anything went wrong. I, rem I remember we like we're scrambling because it's got to get picked up to go to Romania. We're shooting in Romania. So like scrambling to pack stuff, we finally have a test skin of Tiffany's face. All right, let's put the skin on the head and see how it works. It's like, oh, the face moves great. All right, cool. Let's put the head on the body. Put the head on the body. It just went. Oh, no. <laughs> the head was so heavy. The silicone added so much weight to it. So we're like, all right, well, let's, we'll figure that out in Romania. Close up the box. Then we packed like plastic and elastic and all this other stuff to, to do that substructure work after we got there. Cause we had like, I think a week and a half prior to filming to like fine tune stuff, but it was, it was another learn as you go experience with a ticking clock, really just, just so much stress though, just an unreal amount of work to do. The animatronics in Chucky get way more evolved at that point. He's able to do more things as you were saying, you know, by you yeah. know her, her neck movement and all that stuff. And he's doing more. So, and the movies from that, that point on get progressively darker. And there right. are more right. stunts that Chucky's directly involved in. The kills become more involved as well. Is that something that you've had to work on? Okay, we got to figure out how to make this guy move, different ways we can do it, different robotics to incorporate. Well, we learned it on, on Seed. We did all the makeup effects too. So it's like you're the makeup crew and you're the animatronic crew. Let's do it all. And there were some instances where it overlapped and it made good sense to make sure it all worked, like me getting decapitated or, or whatever. But that was a, actually a very schizophrenic day because you're puppeteering the doll that's killing you. You're rigging your dead body to die and you're coordinating the puppeteers. And you're also acting in the scene prior to the dummy taking over. And I hit overload. On, when that show was over, I was completely burned out. And when they talked to me about doing the next one down the road, I was like, it would be really great if we could get someone else to do the, the makeup effects work. I mean, we can cast all the actors and steer the boat as much as you want, but the budgets are literally like less than a third of what we had before. And there's a lot of work for us to figure out how to do. And, and I really want to stay focused on that. All the, the last two films were, the budget for the movies were, were $5 million each. And all of our stuff had to come out of that as well. I mean, what David Kirshner and Don Mancini and everybody involved is able to do with, with the resources available is pretty amazing. You know, and then they're counting on you to do the same. It's like, okay, I don't want to spread myself too thin. So, but, but we really lucked out because Bill Terrazakis up in um, Canada took over on Curse as far as the makeup stuff. We did the life cast and then shipped it all to Canada. And that was, that was the end of it. And um, you didn't have to think twice about what he was doing. I mean, he, he knows his stuff. The same with Adrian Moreau on on cult it's like we're there if you need us but if you don't need us we've got some puppet stuff to do and um just definitely a challenge you know definitely a challenge but again super rewarding but he, he definitely had to do more as time went on 
and we pushed for doing some green screen rod work on Curse, and it worked really well. And, and everybody got the concept because it was kind of a, a new idea. Like when his head pops off, we were able to make his body stand up and specific things happen a lot easier. And then they could just paint us out. You know, digital was, was in the world now. Um, and then when we did Cult, we actually did a lot of like elbow rods. So his hands could do specific things and be a lot easier to control because we weren't, there wasn't any money to build a set up on risers so that we could be underneath it. So we all had to be on this concrete floor, making Chucky walk across this office and then pick something up and hold it out to Fiona Doroff. And then it was, how do we take that scene and break it into pieces to make it possible to do with five adults crowded behind this guy? And then, you know, what's the best way to, to achieve each one of those pieces then? So it's always a... a sort of a puzzle to put together, but we've, we've been able to do things more complex and more involved and more complicated as time's gone on because we've been able to build on what we've learned, you know, and now we have digital assist. So that, that's a huge tool to use to our advantage as well. So it's, it's pretty cool. I want to dial it back to one of my favorite movies, which is The Addams Family and The Addams Family Values. And I know you did the trick with Wednesday Adams blending into the wall. How was that oh. achieved? Because that's just amazing. It's interesting because she was a minor at the time. So the, the original intent was to body paint her and and paint her wardrobe and have it all match. and walk her out on set and, and line it up. And then they realized they only have her on set for a specific number of hours a day, and that wouldn't be the best way to go about it. So we did a body cast of her and did a fake body from the neckline down, including her hands up flat against the wall. Oh, wow. They, they gave us a section of the wall. We mounted her body to the wall. There was a hole where her head would come out. She had the braids to help bridge the gap and sort of hide a little bit back here, pre-painted all of it, like 100%, like that section of the wall went to set completely camera ready. So then when Wednesday had to like be disguised, she sat down in her, her regular makeup chair with the people that she worked with every day. They painted her face up. She had a special wig for this shot. She walked on set, stuck her head through a hole, and then the wig went on. And they shot it a couple times, and she was done. Unbelievable. That's amazing. Wow. And did you make the what? Baby, baby what? what? Yes. yes. So yeah. what notes were you given what to make? What? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what notes were given to you on how to make baby what? It was really more about what it had to do. It had to, like, collide across the floor. Um, look around, head up and down. Uh, and then they wanted a pacifier that went in and out. So it was a little motorized little base, you know, with a, a spine that could bend and then sort of a head pod that could bend. And then there was this mechanism mounted in that for the um, pacifier to go in and out. And then we just used that same thing, whether it was in the, the baby carriage or on the floor or wherever. It was always on that little wheeled base because the hair always covered it. 
Um, but it was really like a low riding uh, little base with really big wheels in there so that hardly any of, any of them stuck out through the bottom of the thing. Were there any talks about making a third one? A third Adams family? Yeah. I wanted a third. My dreams no. have not been made into a reality. <laughs> like, I just don't know why. I think once Raul Julia passed away, I don't yeah. think there was a desire because he so was that character. I mean, he was amazing. And I can't think of, even in going into a, a, an animated version, I expect to see his face as a cartoon because he was so good. And she and like Angelica Houston and Raul together were just, you could watch them work all day. They were amazing, you know? So once he passed away, I don't think anybody really wanted, I don't think there was a way to do it and have it make sense, you know? So it just sort of ended with him. But there wasn't really any talk of it either. I mean, the talk of the sequel came up almost immediately after the first one. And then um, the second one was out a year and a half later. I mean, it was an insane turnaround. Well, since we're on the subject of my favorites, let's go into Happy Death Day, which is another <laughs> one of my favorites. Uh, can you talk to us a bit about creating that iconic baby mask? Yeah, it's interesting. There were so many versions of it. And we'd actually done like two pig versions as well. There was one that was sort of porky pig-ish and one that was sort of a retro 40s pig face. Oh, interesting. Like, a, like an antique pig mask. And Chris Landon, the director, they were getting ready to adopt a newborn. And he was terrified of being a parent. Like, well, I'd be bad, a bad parent. And, and he feels like the, the scariness of, the, of the, the baby life and doing it right was kind of weighing on his decision-making at the time because he went with the, the baby mask, but it, it had a lot of different iterations as well. At one point, it, right before the final look, it was more an homage to, was it Time Bandits? No, Brazil. Oh, yeah. The, the, doctor, the, the doctors in Brazil that have these weird misshapen baby heads, we had done an homage to that as the, the look for the mask. And then he's like, let's just take it and let's just put really big like deer eyes on it. Kind of like one of the preliminary designs for one of the pigs. And we put that on it. And then the disproportionateness of the giant eyes and the little mouth and the skinny nose and then this bulbous head, it, it all sort of was off-putting. And everybody went, it's off-putting in a good way. You know, you could buy this as, as a licensed product as a mascot and then you could also scuff it up and add the creep factor with just some underlighting i mean we were doing we were sculpting the masks we were putting like garbage bag hoods on them and and flashlights underneath them to see what they'd look like and sending chris footage of of you know the sculpture on a turntable with with a flashlight on it and um he took the one of the pig masks and the baby mask to Canada. He's like, I'm just going to test them out. I'm going to wear them and try and scare the crew. So he'd like hide in the closet in the production office and <laughs> jump out at somebody. He's like, you know, 
I, I think I get the better response with the baby. I think it's more disturbing. I think the fact that it's more human makes it more disturbing. So away we went, you know, but it, the thing was to make sure you couldn't see the wearer's eyes or mouth or teeth or anything. So it was really, it was really all about screaming that area and making sure the mask went back far enough. It was inside the hood so that you didn't know who the wearer was, their ethnicity, their, their gender. They were completely anonymous was the idea. And now it's iconic. Now you can buy it at the Halloween store. Now you can go to trick or treat and buy it. I mean, <laughs> I think we need a third. See me in the third. Oh yeah. The third, we need a third happy death day. Yeah. Chris, Chris Landon has ideas for sure. Oh man. That'd be amazing. He and Don Mancini are never at a loss for story ideas or ways to take something and sort of twist it on itself and, and turn it into something new. Uh, it's, I think the reason that Chucky's lasted as long as it has is because David Kirshner has produced all of them, Don Mancini's written all of them, and they've kept it a solid universe this whole time. And all the characters make sense, and their relationships make sense, and the dynamic works. And then Don's directed the last you know, three, so um, there's, there's a cohesiveness there. And I think that same concept translates to Happy Death Day and, and Chris being the guy going, okay, this was the story we worked on the first one. How do we spin that to make something new? And, and while shooting that one, he's got ideas for the next one, you know? And when we were on Freaky, he was, you know, a, a couple of people were saying, you know, you need to do a Happy Death Day 3. And I think he was more of the mindset that it's more, more of a challenge to figure out which ideas not to do because he had so many, you know? And, and that's always energizing. Well, speaking of freaky, we see a, a new mask and the daggers and all this cool stuff in that film. What did you create any of the mask stuff? Were you doing prosthetic stuff, makeup stuff? What were you doing in that? I got to kill everybody. Um, <laughs> which is nice because I didn't get to do it on Happy Death Day. And then I got to do the, we got to do the mask for the film. He'd had such a good experience on Happy Death Day. He's like, I want you to try again. Uh, and come up with something that that is faceless this time. And he pulled a bunch of really great reference, old masks from like 300 BC and s- stuff like that. And um, just sort of let us alone. And Brian Christensen actually rendered it in the computer. We were able to send turnarounds to, to Chris right away. And um, we ended up printing out Brian's design in in maya and uh and then molding that and then making different copies for vince or stunts or you know the wall or whatever um and then with the actors it sort of harkened back to the days of the seat of chucky where we were either going to actors or or getting them life cast somewhere else and getting their cast sent to us so that we could build all the effects but we shot it in atlanta and um andre freitas who'd been with me on the Zombieland movies. Well, he'd been on the first one at that point. Had a shop locally, and he had done all the life casts for us. And he was free to go on set and do all the blood and guts with me, which made it really fun. But I got to say that the the most fun was working with Alan Ruck. I, I think the trailer sort of gives away what's going to happen. Oh, wait, you guys saw it, didn't you? Yeah, we saw yes. it. Yeah, we yes. saw it. Yeah. Okay. 
See, I, I haven't seen it yet. So how'd that scene come out? Oh my God. Oh, that's, yeah, that, that's what I was going to bring up and ask. Actually, it's, it's such a shocking scene. <laughs> How was that effect? How was that effect achieved? How was that done? Well, he has a twin brother and we actually just (laughs) bashed him in. God, Ellen was such a good sport. We did a a head cast of him. We did body measurements. And um, honestly, we used my body as his body and just added some length to the limbs because he's a little taller than I am. Um, But same build. So that saved us time so we could focus on how to make the thing split apart and, and make it line up first so that that actually works and then be able to come apart. But that the main idea was something that we could practically run through an actual legitimate 24 inch cross blade. We had solid versions of his head to actually run into the blade and we had blood tubes inside the table squirting blood onto the saw blade so that it would rotate up and out of the head just off the blade. So we didn't have to try and like hit it in a certain place with the real saw blade and, and make stuff line up because the saw blade wants to close up that opening, you know? So we did the, like, we called them the impact heads of Alan for that point of, you know, it hits and it goes in maybe like three inches. And then we did um, his, his half body. We designed it so that there are magnets inside the head so that there's a there's a fit um of the two halves of the head that's that's really clean um it was cast all as one piece and then we we did all the interior and then we sliced the exterior so they fit together perfectly and then the body there's actually sort of like these rings on each side that you can't see because of all the gunk and there's a, a pull cord that you pull out of it as it goes through the through the saw blade so it's basically like you're pulling a zipper almost you're pulling the line out of a zipper and letting the pieces fall apart so you're just timing that to how fast she's pushing it and then we've got the blood in that one as well as off the blade but the blade oh my god the blade was terrifying because it was real oh <laughs> it's not a digital blade it's massive and it's thick so that it wouldn't warp and it would keep a linear line and be able to cut into silicone. It had to be super strong. So when we shot those scenes, the close-ups and stuff, we were on a soundstage with literally nothing around us other than a lot of plastic. And there was plastic up on the, the, the sides on angles too, because what was happening was the blade was spinning so fast, the blood was literally vaporizing into a cloud. <laughs> We're like, I don't see the blood spraying. I don't, I don't get it. What's happening? And it was spraying, but it was literally, literally atomizing into the air. And then you'd realize everything looked red. It's like, who painted red on everything? It was like, everything was literally covered in red. Um, but we had learned that already shooting in the, the shop set. We had just the, we had it on a lower speed and we had just the, the, um, the blood, we call them fans, shooting um, at, the, at the sides of the blade underneath the table. And then we had added one in the front to create this fan. The hope was that it would fan out and you could see her face through it as she's pushing yeah. towards you. Um, 
And we were in a real school and in a real shop, and the ceilings were 20 feet tall. And after we did the first take, there was blood on the ceiling, and the blood had sort of done this fountain thing and arced over a light, and it filled this one whole area of the floor. So we'd, we'd already had that experience. So when we got to the close-up stuff on the stage isolated, it was literally like they were hanging plastic sheets on frames because they wanted to contain the spray. And then it was atomizing and, and literally covering everything. We'd have to like clean the skin off for take two because it, it, was, it was covered in blood. But it was like a thin mist of it, obviously. So you'd have to do it a couple times, you said, like you, you'd reset it and do it all over again? Yeah, we did two impact heads and we used both of those clean. But I got to say what made it scary, and I don't know if it's in the, in the final version because I haven't seen it, but it was when that impact head gets close to the blade and the air from the blade is blowing his hair. It's like it's just all of a sudden made it that much more real and that much scarier. Yeah. Okay, here's the scary part. We just did a, a, I thought that was going to be like the most extreme gory thing we've ever done. We just did a horror film I'm not allowed to talk about yet. I would call Alan Ruck's scene the warm-up. Wow. Oh, one. wow. 125 gallons of blood, I think in two takes. Oh, my God. That we just did. So yeah, now we're at, we've got this thing going where we're challenging ourselves, trying to come up with what's the next best way. It's like after Alan Ruck threw a table saw in this thing, I think we're good for a while. <laughs> yeah. yeah. With the evolution of higher quality screens, such as 4K Blu-ray, digital, uh, soon 8K, are you finding that you constantly have to hone and evolve your special effects makeup skills? to keep up with the realism that's needed to be captured? It's sort of a little more of a challenge for sure, but it, it also allows for like a cleaner mesh of using Alan Ruck as an example. We have the, the fake forehead and, you know, top of the head from the likeness head of him, which is super detailed and has the right translucency to his skin and all that going through this, the bandsaw. And then we have Alan Ruck then come lay on the table and we push him through in the same line. And we're able to digitally composite a fake head from here up onto real Alan from here down. It's like that opportunity didn't exist, you know, years ago. And, and it exists now because the technology is so good, but also the clarity of the image allows you to, if you're doing the job right, be able to do cool stuff that, that wouldn't have been possible before. That's my, that's my favorite use of, the, of digital, yeah. when it's married with practical yeah. effects. To me, there's no... Yes. It's the best tool, you know, to be able to like, work with actors too that, that have issues with claustrophobia or whatever and be able to only build part of something so that the rest can be added. It, it just frees people to be more creative. And I, I feel like the, the higher end 4K and all that, it, it sort of frees you up to be more creative. You definitely have to be on your toes more, but what's possible is, is exciting. And it just sort of inspires you to come up with new stuff too. 
All right, Tony. Well, listen, man, we've kept you so long and we appreciate your time so much. It's been amazing talking to you, man. We seriously appreciate it so much. Anytime. Seriously, if you want to talk about more old stuff, got a lot. That was the Boo Crew Podcast, episode 183. Special thanks to our guest, Tony Gardner. Follow at Tony Gardner and at Alterian Inc. on Instagram and at time of release, see Freaky in theaters everywhere now. If you liked this conversation, check out episode 182 with Chris Landon and Catherine Newton. Episode 15 with Pat McGee. And episode 34 with Jessica Roth and Chris Landon. Production tracks for this episode provided by none other than Power Man 5000. Till next time, it's the Boo Crew saying sweet screams. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Boo Crew Podcast. Haunt the Boo Crew at TalesFromTheBooCrew.com. Tales from the Boo Crew on Facebook and Instagram. Follow us on Twitter at TalesFromTheBoo. The Boo Crew is Lauren and Trevor Shand and Leone D'Antonio. The Boo Crew is produced by Lauren Shand, chopped and sliced by Trevor Shand. The Boo Crew is a TSP creation, part of the bloody disgusting Podcast Network. Bye. A bloody disgusting podcast network. Home of the Boo Crew. For horror-centric interviews. SCP archives. Weekly full cast storytelling. Horror queers. Genre commentary from an LGBTQ perspective. And creepy. For disturbing and terrifying creepypastas. Listen free wherever you stream audio and at bloodydisgusting.com slash podcasts.